Hello, beautiful listeners, and welcome back to What's Next in EdTech. I am your host, Dalen Reifsteck, and this week we will continue our discussion with Dr. Robert McLaughlin about digital equity. If you missed the last episode, be sure to check it out before diving into this one. Without further ado, let's get back into it. And everybody's agreeing that compliance is not enough anymore, which is good. I mean, that's that's one of like like the recognition that the digital divide is it, it, no longer puzzles anybody as to why it matters. I think what we're also seeing is that is that banking leaders and policymakers and regulators and examiners and community partners all recognize we got to all up our game on these investments. We got to move from compliance to impact because we because our 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 economy now in the pandemic pandemic era is awful and it's about to get awfuler because we're about to see massive at a massive i think on potentially unprecedented scale we're going to see lots of foreclosures and evictions if something doesn't happen really soon the economy is going to get worse and it's going to be very much like the cities in rubble in europe at the end of world war ii where we're going to have to really rebuild and this half trillion dollars just from the banks alone along with what philanthropies are doing, educational systems, we've got to be much more intentional and collaborative in how we design these investments. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. But here's the million dollar question. How do you get these banks to work together when in a sense that- Well, so I, I think it's like, it's, I would say it's very similar to, uh, to colleges of education in the state that are competing for enrollment, but they also care about the efficacy of what they're doing as a profession to help better prepare future teachers for the realities to meet the needs of kids. And, and I think you've got, so they're, they're gonna have, many of them will have teachers in their family. They're gonna have kids and grandkids in the schools. They're gonna be neighbors. They're gonna be, some of them have grown up themselves in poverty and know exactly what this is about. Uh, and they, they know how they succeeded against all the odds. Very similar mix of, of motivations with bankers as with anyone else, you're going to see, I think it's a fair, I think it's a fair generalization that the vast majority of CRA compliance officers, they can be assured that compliance is not at risk. They're going to be unleashed to pivot from compliance and doing inertially what they did the last time the examiners came out, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because job one is making sure the regulators like and understand what they see and they approve what you're doing because otherwise their bank loses deposit fdic depositor insurance which is like a college losing accreditation that's game over so they're very you know inertial from one year to the next and how they spend their dollars but if they know in advance that what they're doing is fully compliant with cra you're going to see them want to pivot to have more impact and the readiness we're seeing of the bankers to step up and say we all are citizens in this community. We all care about these kids. We know these kids, their future is, is not very bright if we don't get our act together and we can make a huge difference by working together. And maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I don't think so. The early response we're seeing from the New Hampshire Bankers Association, these 12 bank presidents with operations in Manchester, it's been very heartwarming for everybody involved. They're saying, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. And in the first five weeks of working as a partnership, we've already had four Zoom calls, which is an astonishing thing for folks who don't have time on their schedules for anything. 
you know, they're making time for this. So it's, it's a great question. I, and I think uh, we're still trying to prove the concept of this, but the early indications are very encouraging. That is wonderful. Could you touch on who sets those compliance um, regulations for the banks? Yeah, so, uh, so there are, the, uh, and it, it's one of these situations, if you're confused, you're paying great attention. So, so there are uh, not one, not two, but three federal agencies that regulate different flavors of bank. There's uh, the, the Federal Reserve, which for the most part uh, is responsible for reviewing uh, banks with operations in one state. Then there are, then there's Treasury and their mouthful of an acronym OCC, which stands for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and catch your breath, OCC for short, thank God. And OCC oversees large regional and national banks compliance, generally speaking. And then FDIC oversees the, the vast swath of, you know, all the, the medium sized ones or the, the smaller ones that are in multiple states. Uh, and they all um, have some differences in their reporting format and in their criteria. Uh, and that is actually a bit of controversy right now about how should we best modernize CRA policy uh, in light of online banking and in light of fintech and competitors who aren't regulated at all? And, and how do we do this in a way that's responsible? And, uh, and that's still being worked out. We're, but from our vantage point, um, all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of systemic inclusion are, are eligible for CRA credit, whether it's current policy or the policy that's being considered by all three of these agencies. It's just a matter of getting the banks to change how they're spending. Well, it, 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 it is, um, uh, but there's this inertial thing going on and there's the, the reality that, um, that the inertia is, is there not only because of it ain't broke, don't fix it from a compliance perspective, because they're gonna get you know, a satisfactory or outstanding rating the next time they get reviewed as they did the last time, uh, you know, um, so that's one reason. But another reason is, you know, they've made longstanding commitments to, uh, you know, a community action agency that's been doing amazing, you know, achingly good stuff around affordable housing for low-income families. And they don't want to discontinue that. And they've got, you know, they've got agencies and communities with longstanding commitments and, and, uh, and social capital making good stuff happen so they don't want to they don't want to forsake those kinds of commitments and a lot of them are doing great stuff around bank on um it's just what we're saying is we've got to together figure out how to make these investments in an integrated way and more intentionally and and with an eye to getting low-income learners of all ages out of poverty and that that ought to be our metric, that we ought to be aspiring for more than compliance. And I think it's gonna be a long, it's gonna be a marathon, not a sprint, and it won't be quick fixes. And it will be, you know, in the context of, you know, bankers really juggling a lot of competing demands for their resources. Well, it sounds like you're already making some progress here in New Hampshire. Could you touch on that pilot program that you spoke about earlier? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and I, I'll channel my inner Richard Nixon uh, you know, which is, I'm, I'm glad you asked me this. Let me say this about that. So I'm really glad you asked me about the Manchester pilot. We're really excited about this. This is that, that group I mentioned before that is comprised of 12 bank leaders who are just 
really excited about working together with each other and with foundation leaders and educational system leaders at the K-12 and, and post-secondary levels. And one of the things we did as, as a methodology for working together is we first started off with, okay, so you're, you know, we anticipated that the first question we figured the bank leaders would have is, so you're talking about systemic inclusion and making joint investments. What are you, what are you talking about there? What's it look, what do you mean? What are some, so we gave some concrete examples of, of what we call low hanging fruit. The thinking being that let's start with relatively easy things so we could grow a track record, get some experience working together and uh, on something that would be meaningful and with measurable impacts, but would be relatively easy to make happen pretty quickly so we could build momentum, confidence, and take on bolder, progressively bolder, and, and, you know, and more and more impactful, oh my gosh, wow, kinds of things over time. So we talked about an, a number of different possibilities as concrete examples, and what the group then came up with together so banking leaders really themselves developed consensus about two things they wanted to do something about right away. And one of them, I, and I promise I did not have my thumb on the scale and I didn't say anything and I was, I was gleeful in, internally. They said, you know, we've got a thousand students in Manchester, K-12 kids, low-income kids who don't have a computer. And the school system was lending out Chromebooks that were old, that were, that were on their last legs, many of them, uh, but they needed them back because they're going to hybrid learning as many school systems are. They didn't have enough devices to have home access and school access. So we, we worked with them very closely and came up with the target that we needed to raise funding to buy a thousand laptops that would go home with, for low-income kids that didn't have those devices at home that would allow those Chromebooks to come back to the school that were temporarily loaned to them and replace some of the ones that should have been, that were howling in the, in the corner anyway. They should never have been let out, you know? <laughs> really old, you know, like seven-year-old Chromebooks um, that were really, you know, beyond old. Um, okay, so that's, so, we, so that was their first priority uh, is that, and we've begun a fundraising campaign uh, with, with, with banks leading that. Uh, the second priority, which I'm really excited about, sort of a part A, part B to it, which is strengthening inclusive pathways to living wage jobs or economic inclusion with a, a sous-son of education inclusion in there. And, and that has to do with um, two, two, so part A, part B, pathways into uh, teaching and pathways into banking. And pathways into teaching is really interesting because there's a lot of like definitive empirical research that shows that the more you diversify the K-12 teaching workforce, the better the outcomes for kids of color are in a diverse school system in terms of a whole range of, of, of indicators, including attendance, referral to discipline and special ed, those go down uh, because there's more cultural understanding that, that teachers bring to you know, this student is responding in a culturally appropriate way for them that teachers from that, not from that culture might not understand whether they make eye contact or not, for example, uh, whether they're quiet or loud or, you know, uh, you know with, with a more cultural capital in the mix, there's better understanding of the kids. But you also see more really, really important significant outcomes have to do with um, narrowing the achievement gap 
between kids from different racial, ethnic, and linguistic backgrounds and, and majority kids. Uh, so the achievement gap gets better and the graduation rates get better. So when we look at, and there's a partnership that Southern New Hampshire University has with Manchester schools, school system and Manchester Proud and the commu Manchester Community College and now these banks saying, how do we grow these pipelines of parents of kids of color in Manchester that are unemployed or underemployed into paraprofessional and then into full-time teaching jobs certified with the school system. And the district is really excited about this because uh, it's gonna it's gonna really diversify the workforce and all for all the benefits that we were talking about a moment ago. And people like employment agencies and employment security will talk about a benefits cliff, which is a very real thing that happens when you go from, from being fully eligible for subsidized healthcare and childcare and all those essential services to where you just make enough money to yep. lose that subsidy, right? Like, and being a, a para in a school system meets that unfortunate criterion. So, so they're at a place where they, they lose those subsidies for childcare and healthcare, but they don't make enough to pay for that on their own. Mm -hmm. And they don't get those as benefits of, of being a full-time employee. And all that changes if they can get to the other side of the chasm and get into full-time employment with benefits and a good income. And, and all of a sudden, childcare and healthcare, those barriers go away. Well, CRA credit can be, can be given to banks for investing in financing the subsidies while they're in that, that, uh, you know, that benefit cliff you know, phase. Um, okay, now the other part B of this is pathways into banking, and this is very cool. So I've mentioned how the pathways into teaching has really multi-generational benefits for inclusion. It's immediate benefit in terms of underemployed and unemployed adults of color getting into good you know, careers in teaching. So that's a, a near-term economic inclusion impact, but long-term for the kids of color growing up that they're serving their outcomes are statistically significantly improved and those robust information. And, uh, but one of, the, one of the places where the bankers are really important in this is that one of the things that happens to bank that on, similarly though, we believe, and there's, there's not a body of research that I'm aware of about this, but we hypothesize that as you diversify the workforce for banking, we should see similar multi-generational benefits the immediate economic inclusion benefits of getting underemployed and unemployed adults of color in, and linguistically diverse and so on into banking is gonna, is gonna have, you know, obviously inclusion impacts for them as soon as they're employed, but also uh, there's anecdotal, plenty of anecdotal evidence to suggest that the decisions that are made by branch managers and tellers and particularly loan officers and those who provide banking services to communities of color and linguistically diverse communities are going to dramatically improve. And let me just say really quickly about that. A very concrete example is that one fellow I know who presented for us at our, at our New Hampshire summit a year ago on systemic inclusion uh, was at that time, he's now the, the CEO for a community development corporation in Somerville, Mass., but he was the vice president for CRA compliance for a large six-state regional bank with operations in New Hampshire and five other states. And when he got to his bank, the, the portfolio of affordable home lending uh, 
program that he oversaw in his office, 11% of their home, of the, their affordable lending program went to families of color when he got there in 2011, 11%. By 2014, it, he had increased it three times to 34%. Wow. I thought that's what I said too. And I saw that on his LinkedIn profile. He talked about this on his LinkedIn. And I think he was very surprised that I actually, you know, noticed that and asked him about it. I said, Is, am I right in thinking there's a story there? And he said, funny you should say that. Turns out he's from Venezuela. He's a, he's a naturalized citizen now, but he came from Venezuela when he was young, as a teen, young teen. He said, I know that in my culture, and in many Latin cultures, not all, but many, that the credit rating is not a reliable predictor of who's going to be a good credit risk. Because he said, ironically, in our, he said, coming from my culture, I can tell you that if, if I've got a living wage income, I'm supporting everybody as far as my eye can see in my family. My nephews and nieces and cousins and second cousins and third cousins and their neighbors. I mean, I, you know, and so... And so when you see the credit rating that talks about the income to debt ratio, for example, the ratio oftentimes isn't that great, but it's not because they're a bad credit risk, quite the opposite. They're so diligent about being responsible and impactful with the resources they have, that wow, are they an amazing credit risk. So the whipped cream and cherry on top of that story is that not only did he more than triple the inclusiveness of its lending portfolio, the delinquency rate went down. And I said, how'd you do it? He said, I educated our loan officers. So he was transmitting his cultural mm -hmm. capital, right, to them and saying to them, see beyond the numbers. Here's some questions you can ask them and say, well, I, I noticed your credit rating is 540, you know, and so, so on, on the surface, it looks like your income to your debt is not that great. You know, it's not, it's, it's not as good as it could be. What's up with that? Well, he said, they'll talk about uh, somebody who needed an operation back in their home country. Uh, somebody who's suddenly sick or their, their grandparents just moved in with them and they, don't, they can't afford the food. And this is a you know, head of household who's stepping up everywhere he or she turns around. And what they found is that once these loan officers started getting it, they were making better decisions and opening up access in ways that really move the dials. So we believe that that's going to be, that's going to be one of the benefits we want to be able to track over time too. Does that make sense? That is, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. That is great. It's, it, it, it really is more than just about the numbers. You really have to look at the entire picture and everything that's going on. So thank you for that, Bob. Um, so what are, I know that you're making an impact right now, it's quite obvious, but what are some things that we can do to help, that I can do to help? Well, you and your colleagues are. Uh, I mean, this podcast is, is, is very kind of you to do this. Uh, you and your colleagues are partnering with us on, on exploring how can we develop win-win-win partnerships with banks to have systemic inclusion impact. That's really incredibly important. Equally, because you do care and feeding for a growing family of ed tech companies that that you're able to bring to these conversations with banks amazing resources around numeracy financial literacy uh one of your one of the companies that you work with as you know is education associates they've got among a wild array of just rich 
smorgasbord of cool, you know, curated deep web, surface web, you know, sorry, hidden web content. They've got uh, a great curriculum they've pulled together in response to our working with bankers on pathways into banking careers for K-12 students. I mean, there are, and, and you all are, are constantly up on what do we know about promising and proven technologies that have evidence of impacting and, and I think of I think of student learning in three dimensions in terms of data. I think of learning results, which is the obvious thing, but also learning opportunities data and learning climate and engagement stuff. And it's often it's often the case in and I've taught I've taught about this in 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 teaching future teachers that that looking at student learning results data, we need to look at the opportunities to learn because that often explains a lot of why we're getting the results we're getting. Are we, for example, tracking kids into dumbed down math? Because heaven forbid we should let, signal to them that we expect them to be capable of college level math, you know? So that's a kind of learning opportunity indicator. And then learning climate has to do with, are we helping all kids feel safe and valued? And those things are predictors of results too. The, one of the things I, I, of many things I love about working with Douglas Stewart is that you all are very mindful and deeply thoughtful about these issues. I mean, brain codes is one where, I mean, my synapses explode, <laughs> you know, with the amazing stuff that that one company is doing that can inform pedagogy, you know, instructional strategy. So I, I, I want to go through your all's minds just about daily with a shopping cart. <laughs> and, right? No, I promise you there's way more in your mind than there is in ours. Well, I don't believe that for a moment. I know better. I already know that. Well, thank you so much. And one final question before we wrap up this podcast. So where can people go to learn more about the NCDE and the work that you're doing? So uh, probably the easiest way is digitalequity.us. That's our website. Uh, and you'll see a variety of things there, and we're we're adding to this a lot now. Um, we've just uh, we've just issued the first of a two-part series of articles with Teacher Librarian, which is a journal uh, that we think provides a really nice overview of this stuff. Uh, and the second part sort of brings it home, we think and hope. Uh, the first the first it, um, the first article just came out in the September October issue of Teacher Librarian. The next one's going to come out. Uh, in uh, November, December, uh, and so that's in the can and, and being uh, munched away on. So that's going to be pretty nice. We've got the New Hampshire Summit. We're about to launch a, a national annual summit, the second annual national summit on systemic inclusion and CRA uh, in November and December. Uh, we're doing all these things virtually like everybody else because of COVID, of course. Um, and that's going to be the kickoff to a national series of virtual state summits that begin the process of doing what we've done for several years in New Hampshire, which is to mobilize an infrastructure of partners at, at the, the low income community level and state level in education, banking, workforce development and philanthropy to spur joint sustained investments to help low income learners of all ages get out of poverty you know, in very integrated ways. So that there'll be opportunities to participate there. Um, and, um, and on the website in the resources tab, you're going to see some cool resources about to get cooler uh, in the next week or so. Uh, we're adding an educator's guide to digital equity, which is going to 
uh, be promoted to about 3 million educators and teacher educators uh, and a variety of other things. Does that help? Oh, sense? yes. We'll be sure to leave some links in the um, comments of the podcast so that anyone can go check out National Collaborative for Digital Equity. Um, and we'll leave some comments in case you guys want to go check out those state summits. Uh, but I just want to give a big thank you to Dr. Robert McLaughlin for taking the time out of his busy day to come and explain all these important issues. And uh, thanks. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their evening. Thanks. It's been really a privilege and a, and a joy to be with you. Thank you. Take care. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Robert. That was amazing. Holy yeah. crap. That's, that's going that's to be you know, great. Everyone's going to love that. You know, and, and Sarah, I mean, Dalen for sure. And Sarah in particular, I'm amazed you haven't keeled over with, oh my God. No, let's see, this is how you inoculate, you've inoculated me with it. Every time I hear it, we get better at helping to tell and, and amplify this story as well. So that, that was great stuff. Thank you so much. These are really great questions. That's There's an art to that. That was really, those are awesome. Yeah, well, you make it Thank easy. You. Yeah, but it, but they're all you'll appreciate this. They're all they were all slow pitch softball questions. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing too hard. That was awesome and kind. I love um, it. I'm I'm so excited for what you, all the gold nuggets that you guys pull that together. So thank you so much, Bob, for for that time and and thanks, Emily and Dalon for. Thank you, and let me know when you've got it uh, ready for prime time, and you've got a link, and and we'll we'll do our link thing. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. I almost don't even want to cut it into two episodes. I, I have my work cut out for me, that's for sure. There's not a single <laughs> sentence I want to cut out of this. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks, guys. What a treat. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. You have a great rest Bye. of your What's Next in EdTech is a podcast from the Douglas Stewart Company. Our episodes are written and produced by Dalen Reifsteck and Emily Grebner and are created on the Anchor platform. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and rate us. Do you have any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future? Please be sure to leave us a message on Anchor. Thanks for listening, and until next time.